Hey folks, thanks for listening to our 11th episode of Council Cast, uh, Jedi Council Podcast. Uh, you've got Brandon. And Katie. And we're here just to, to talk to you about all, all the great intersections between comic books and psychology, to gaming, just whatever we feel like talking about this day. That's, that's kind of, it's just all off the cuff. It's just <laughs> all, all good times here. So, Katie, Rogue One trailer, did you watch it? I did watch it, and before that I watched many a hilarious meme created on Twitter, people complaining about it taking too long to debut, <laughs> so that was amusing too, but the trailer was even better than that. I did see a few of those myself. It was supposed to drop yesterday, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it, people were asking, where the heck is this thing? I didn't watch it until today, so I'm late to the party, but man, am I ever excited. Is it So, psychology question, is it possible for me to sleep until... The, the movie comes out, and will I be asked to leave the program? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know, because I'm going to have a hard time doing anything until it comes out, because I'm just so excited about it, but um, I hope you do get some sleep, because I think that, <laughs> that way we'll be able to analyze it better for Absolutely. our podcast following Rogue One, which is inevitable. Absolutely. No, it, was, it looked great. A lot of new characters. One thing I really love about this idea of exploring some of the Rogue One stuff is we're taking a step back from some of these huge characters. So they've developed this universe where everyone knows who Luke Skywalker is. Everyone's heard of Han Solo. But I'm really excited to take a look at some of the, I don't know what's the right way to refer to them, kind of the ground forces that took part in the rebellion. I think it's just, it's going to be a whole new look at the universe that I'm really excited to uh, to get more into. Definitely. And stay tuned till the very last frame of the trailer. Yes. Because... <laughs> There you will see our first character that we ever wrote a blog post about, Anakin Skywalker as Darth Vader. Well, now Darth Vader in that, and it is pretty exciting to see him and think that we'll get to see him on the big screen. Absolutely, and I loved that they used the Imperial March to kind of open the trailer. Oh, man, I had goosebumps. I still do just thinking about it. Uh, It looks fantastic. All right. Uh, Rogue One trailer, it's awesome. If you haven't watched it, watch it right now. Mm -hmm. Other than that, Suicide Squad. Katie, overall impressions, what did you think of it? Well, I went into it, and I I thought it was interesting because I, of course, as is well known, Rotten Tomatoes' overall summary score was pretty negative about it. Yep. But it was like that. Right around 30, below 30? Right around 30 last time I looked at it. Yeah, something like that. Um, And, you know, Batman vs. Superman, of course, was, where was that? A lower than, just a little bit lower than Suicide Squad. Though. Okay. So I think it was right around 27 or something last time I looked. So Rotten Tomatoes is usually, I, I go there and look at movies and stuff like that, but I, as we've talked about before on this podcast, I really enjoyed Batman vs. Superman mm-hmm. quite a bit, so I didn't know what to expect. Plus, on top of it, the people who went to go see it, non-movie critics, just said how much they enjoyed the movie. And so, um, anyway, I enjoyed it overall. I get some of where some of the criticisms mm-hmm. were coming from, and I do think there are a lot of interesting mental health points that we could talk about. Absolutely. But it's enjoyable. I thought it was mm-hmm. worth seeing in the theater for sure. No, I felt the same way. So I kind of went into it a little hesitant because of the reviews, but also open-minded because of Batman vs. Superman suffering from some of the same reviews. So I tried to approach it just thinking about, does this feel like a comic book? 
and it very much did feel like a comic book mm-hmm. to me as I was enjoying the story. Um, a lot of you know the things because I know some of the criticism that maybe there's some one-liners that were a little iffy, but uh, I felt like a lot of the things that the characters were saying or doing were really consistent with what you might see in the frame of a comic book, so I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie. And overall, I really liked it. I've seen it twice now, and uh, it, it does. of course, I loved Batman vs. Superman more, um, but I think this is a great movie, and I think it, it's a good continuation of the DC, um, DC Cinematic Universe. It definitely introduced some cool characters, which was one of the points, right, is kind of introducing some of these yeah. characters, and later... There's been this confirmed, for example, solo movie for Harley Quinn, I think. And, yep. And so it, it certainly did that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if I can just jump in with some discussion points about Suicide Squad. I don't know if you know this about me, uh, loyal podcast listeners, and Katie. My favorite character is Batman. And we got to see a little Batman in the in the Suicide Squad. So he And, of course, if you haven't figured it out by now, there's going to be some spoilers. So if you haven't seen Suicide Squad... You might want to hold off on this episode. But the Batman pops up in a few different parts. So the first time that we see him is in the flashback when Deadshot is introduced. And what we have is Deadshot walking with his daughter. And they're having this conversation. He would like her to live with him. And her mother doesn't want him to. And they're talking about how he does bad things. He denies it, but she knows it. And then Batman kind of drops in out of nowhere. Says, I don't want to do this in front of your daughter. They have a little bit of a scuffle. And then Deadshot pulls a gun on Batman, and his daughter steps in the way and asks him not to shoot him, and then uh, he doesn't. Batman handcuffs him, and the cops come. Well, did you have any thoughts about that part? Uh, the overall impression of that part, Katie? Well, I was actually really curious, because you know Batman so well, mm-hmm. and his character, what you thought about the way that he was acting. I mean, later on in the movie, you under- we understand even more at a deeper level what might have motivated him to do that but what do you think about the way he was acting in that oh batman specifically Mm -hmm. i I thought that was a little bit inconsistent with what we might Mm -hmm. expect out of batman to be honest so i didn't dislike it by any means i thought it was fine um but i thought in so batman's a planner he's obviously was going to be you know pulling some surveillance on deadshot waiting for the right time and i'm not sure he would have picked the time when his daughter was there too especially someone who's you know so susceptible to trauma involving parents and children i thought that it would have been a little bit more appropriate for him to wait for a time to engage deadshot when the daughter wasn't present to really reduce that risk of harm for her and to take away that experience from her so she didn't kind of have to go through that that was kind of what i was thinking when i saw it yeah i agree i mean for it seemed like it wasn't it was certainly wasn't sensitive to the child's needs and usually batman right. is so good about that the the other side of it that I kind of saw is it does seem like they um, depict Deadshot as basically not, just basically being unfeeling about everything except for his daughter. Yep. And so it does seem like a couple times they use her as leverage because that's the yes. only motivation they have to compel him to do anything. Otherwise, he even says he's pretty ruthless. Yep. And And so it, there's a little bit of a conflict in my mind for that there about... But but yeah, initially it was like that. He is he's so great about protecting children that it didn't really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think they tried to get around that, skirt around that issue mm-hmm. a little bit by having him with the line, "I don't want to do this in front of your daughter," mm-hmm. but then goes ahead and basically engages him anyway. But I think that was their attempt. Like I said, I didn't dislike that part, uh, but I wasn't crazy about it. It didn't feel super consistent for me. Yeah. The second Batman scene, um, in Harley's flashback. So we have Harley and Joker out on uh, date night, they call it. 
uh, racing around town in a Lamborghini. Batmobile pursues from behind. Batman launches up, lands on top of their car. Harley starts trying to shoot at him, and then Joker drives right off of uh, the uh, side of a bridge or something, presumably like that, into the water. And then Batman, you know, grapples up, puts in his breathing apparatus, and dives in after him to save them. And then Joker's gone already, and Harley's pretending to be unconscious, and then tries to cut him with a knife, and then he knocks her unconscious, and but still saves her. I thought this was right on mm -hmm. with what we might see from Batman, especially when you consider the context of this is a time, presumably after Harley and Joker had killed Robin, and Harley was complicit in that, that's revealed in the movie, or an accomplice in that, and Batman still goes out of his way to make sure that she's okay, saves her, brings her up, ultimately arrests her, but um, I don't think... I mean, I just it felt very much more consistent than what we saw with in the Deadshot flashback. Well, I don't know what did you think. About yeah, that? I I thought that that scene was great too. I mean, it shows that that does seem. Now I'm not. I don't know Batman as well as you do, but <laughs> from what I do know about Batman, it does seem like he does whatever he can, even if someone is coming at him like she was, to yes. subdue and get them taken care of, but to not permanently harm them. And so I thought that was that was pretty well done, and it was just a cool scene visually to watch. Absolutely, I agree. And I think the timeline is a little messy for me. So obviously that movie took place after Batman vs. Superman, mm -hmm. but I wasn't quite sure where that flashback might have taken place. But So it's not totally clear to me, but assuming that that flashback took place after Batman vs. Superman as well, I think it demonstrates some growth in Batman in that he is a lot less ruthless in that scene than what we saw in a lot of the Batman vs. Superman scenes. So yeah, I thought that was an interesting part of that as well. Yeah, and that was one of the things that people had trouble with, with Batman vs. Superman. Oh, yeah. So I wonder if leaning back kind of toward to the compassion of his character yeah. is, is uh, people are going to like that a lot better. Absolutely. So then uh, the last scene, which you have to stay for about halfway through the credits and then you finally get to see this, what we have is... Um, Amanda Waller, who we've seen throughout the whole movie just to be, I mean, kind of a ferocious character, really not taking anything from anyone and not leaving any loose ends. And presumably what we're seeing here is she's kind of asking Bruce Wayne for some sort of protection um, so that people don't find out what actually happened during the events of Suicide Squad. So what I thought was really interesting about this scene, if I can just jump in and give you my impressions, was right here we're not dealing with a billionaire uh, in the hiding Bruce Wayne. This Bruce Wayne clearly has like some political power and sway and is a well-known person if he has the sort of you know political power and gumption to be able to shield this event and protect Amanda Waller which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I also really loved how because Amanda Waller like I said she doesn't really take anything from anyone and she kind of throws out a jab at Bruce Wayne as he's leaving that he should quit working so late at night <laughs> indicating that you know she knows that he's Batman she didn't feel like she could use that as leverage against mm -hmm. him, but she wanted to even the playing field. And he basically just looks back at her and tells him, tells her rather, that he's going to shut down her whole show. And I really thought that was really a great, a, a nice, accurate portrayal of Batman. He's you know willing to help her, of course, to get his uh, to get his team assembled, mm -hmm. and also just not taking any grief from her. I thought that was great, especially coming from a character who we've seen really kind of bullying people throughout the whole movie. It felt good to me to see someone kind of tell her off a little bit. 
and I also really liked um, the differences between those two characters in that we have Amanda Waller, who believes in using leverage to get people to do what she needs, and then we have Bruce Wayne, who believes in cultivating these relationships or friendships and getting, you know, developing a team in that way. I just thought that was really interesting. Did you have any any thoughts about that? I I think you summed it up, and actually, I liked that scene, but I, it's a it means a lot more hearing your analysis. Sure. Because now I understand some of the dynamics a little bit better than the first time that I saw it. Okay, so, sure. And, uh, anything specific that that I've raised that you hadn't thought of, or just which part? If I, I guess can... the contrast in their styles, sure. their leadership styles, I think that's really interesting because I do think that's a common theme through a lot of DC Comics mm. and otherwise just how do different people get power and how do they use mm-hmm. their power. And that's always relevant and kind of like... We've talked in a previous podcast with um, Richard Early from Paradox. He was kind of talking about how comics can reflect the times. And yeah. I think this is an example of something that is an issue that a lot of people are concerned about now. So it's nice to see that reflected in a film that way. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Because this is a, a comment that I've heard mm-hmm. is typically, or maybe not typically, but sometimes the betrayal of Batman is that he doesn't really care to be a part of the Justice League. So there's some origin stories of the Justice League where they kind of develop and they say, well, Batman, would you like to be part of this? And he just says, no, but when you need my help, and you will, you can call me and I'll be around. Um, whereas this time we actually have Batman kind of spearheading the effort to develop and, and put together the Justice League. I don't know, do you have any thoughts about that and just kind of this different betrayal of Batman just on what you do know or, or what you have thought about? You know, even in the the Lego Batman beleaguered movie, the sure. Justice League, which is worth seeing if you haven't seen it yet. You've seen it. I, I have talked about it, but um, for our thousands of listeners, you might want to check it out. It's on Netflix. And even that idea is they're basically trying to get Batman on Justice League, and that's probably reflective, it sounds like, mm. most of the interpretations. But it seems like from Batman versus Superman, there is something very motivating to him about... Superman's death, and from that, say, thinking, well, we c- we can work together and be more powerful, and it seemed like that's ultimately how they defeated Lex Luthor's evil plan mm-hmm. in Batman versus Superman. And so, to me, even if it's not the same as previous portrayals, it's believable in that he sees the power of kind of working together. Mm-hmm how they can do more. Mm -hmm. And so obviously, and Wonder Woman played a huge role in that too. And so I wonder if within that universe, I interpret it as kind of changing the way he's thinking about things rather than I have to do it all alone and you'll just contact me if you need me. But rather, if we all team up, Mm -hmm. we can be stronger Mm -hmm. just up front about it. Absolutely. I like like it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that I know there are some people who are kind of calling like purists a little bit and they don't want the story to be changed. And there are other people who don't get why the stories never change. So I think it's hard for people who develop these stories to win a little bit. But I like that they're taking a little bit of a new direction with some of this stuff. I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, you have 75 years of a character and um, to continue this type of popularity, it seems like you have to have some flexibility in different representations of characters. I understand people being loyal to certain mm-hmm. versions, and we all have maybe our favorite versions mm-hmm. of those types of, of, of different characters and stuff like that. But um, it is, you know, you're right, it's hard to win with everyone. Maybe you're just oh, yeah. trying to pull in different crowds at different mm-hmm. times. So maybe the biggest part of Suicide Squad, what people are most excited about, was Harley Quinn and the Joker. I, I think I'm kind of reading that right, just in kind of the online conversation and, and presence before the film came out. Um, what were your overall thoughts of those two characters? 
Well, Harley Quinn definitely, as we've talked about before on this podcast, is really popular, very oh, yeah. popular popular for Halloween costumes, for cosplay, all that other kind of stuff, and people are really interested in her character. And I, I personally, there are some depictions of her that I haven't particularly been that fond of. Yep. This was probably one of my favorite depictions of her, and I haven't read a ton mm-hmm. or seen a ton of 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 her, but um, in this one, I think that she's more sympathetic than she's been in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, you can understand a little bit more why she is attracted to the Joker because he at least shows some affection towards her, yes. which I know some people didn't like that because it seemed out of character for their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, someone I was talking to yesterday said it's kind of like the train wreck relationship that you like watching and. Maybe that's just not my personal yeah. preference. So, so I liked that they, I, I liked that they showed her developing and, and um, I guess just frankly some of her intellect and even some of her compassion and stuff like that. So those are the aspects I liked. There were some I, I didn't like. But what do you think overall? Oh, overall, I felt I think we were kind of on the same page with that mm-hmm. based on what I've just heard you said say. I really liked both of the depictions as well. I thought that Harley was very interesting. Uh, certainly a fun on-screen presence. She brought something a little bit different to the sort of the ensemble that I think was maybe lag would have been lagging without her. Um, and I think it was kind of interesting to see I, a few times they show that maybe because she certainly I don't know what's the right way to describe how she acts eccentric maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a few times where there's a little bit more serious or somber tone that she takes. Um, particularly, you know, there's that scene in the staircase where she's kind of asking Deadshot if he's ever been in love. And a little bit, I think you see it a little bit after, presumably she thinks the Joker has died. Mm-hmm. You get to see her being a little bit more serious. Also in the bar scene, when um, El Diablo talks about his family dying, or him killing mm-hmm. his family, and she kind of is a lot more serious at that part. So I think those are some interesting um, parts of her characterization that I really enjoyed. Yeah, you see some of... The skills that she had as a psychiatrist, apparently, yeah. before she became Harley Quinn, coming back out and her understanding of people. And my favorite scene of Harley Quinn was when she ultimately goes up against the Enchantress and mm-hmm. um, by cleverly tricking her. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that's a big deal because she thinks at that point the Joker's dead mm-hmm. and you know she doesn't fall apart she she connects with her friends and she comes up with a clever plan to ultimately save the world mm-hmm. no I, I agree I thought it was great um Joker I also I I'm excited to see more of the Joker on the screen so I can get a better feel for the character but overall I really liked it I think it's a different interpretation of the Joker a little less of an anarchist a little bit more mob boss sort of style mm-hmm. kind of I think that was kind of more of the direction they were taking um, I, so I liked that. I thought that his scenes were, were definitely interesting, and I'm excited to see more of it. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of depth because mm-hmm. that you could get just because of the limited time he yes. was on the screen. And I know some people criticized that, too, yes. just that he wasn't on the screen enough. But I did think it was interesting to have him more in the background and a focus yep. on some of the other characters. I agree. I think it was good that they did that with both the Joker and the Batman because these are two of the biggest DC characters, so I thought it was really cool to kind of have them in the background a little bit and just seeing that yeah they're definitely there they're in the they're in the world but that's not really who we're focusing on right now i thought that was a really cool thing so one thing that i was somewhat problematic for me with regards to harley quinn's depiction 
is there were a couple times where there were jokes made about her having hallucinations, yep. both auditory and visual hallucinations. And I, I'm, I guess just as a psychologist and having worked with people who are experiencing psychotic symptoms like hallucinations, there's nothing fun about them. They're pretty distressing the oh, yeah. vast majority of the time. I mean, sometimes people have some pleasant, but it's mm-hmm. certainly nothing that is high comedic value. And so I wondered, to me, it seems like a little step backward anytime I see that, that there's some joke yep. about, isn't it funny how crazy she is, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That's my gut reaction. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree completely. And I know I I think I've only worked with one client who had pretty severe auditory and visual hallucinations, and it was certainly not anything to joke about. It was really distressing for this person and really um, functionally impairing for a lot of aspects of their life. So I, I absolutely agree. I think... It, it, maybe it does make a little bit of light of something that's definitely um, really unpleasant to experience. And maybe from a comedic standpoint, I guess it seems like the kind of thing when you see people making fun of actors, which you still see all the time because they're overweight or something like right. that, it seems like kind of a low level, like let's just make fun of someone because they're fat or they're mentally mm-hmm. ill or whatever it is. And... There are more sophisticated types of humor. And and honestly, there are comedians who have suffered from mental health problems that can do these things in a funny yet caring and sensitive way when they talk about mental health problems. But I to me, this felt just kind of like an easy joke, like let's all laugh at the crazy person kind of thing. I agree. And I think it it's a little bit inconsistent with the characterization of Harley Quinn, broadly speaking. There's not a lot of times... I don't know. I maybe maybe there are some times where she has some sort of pseudo hallucinations mm-hmm. or or psychotic symptoms, but it sort of felt a little tacked on in that one scene. I I felt, but I don't know. Maybe I'm reading the scene wrong. But I I agree with your interpretation, and uh, I kind of felt the same way when I saw it too. They were seemed like they were trying to make she's so crazy span out a little bit more than maybe in some of the other depictions where yeah. it's like she's evil or something, or right. she's just you know this kind of. Um, accomplice to the Joker. Yeah, well, so further extending kind of this discussion of mental health in the movie, in the referencing the staircase scene again, um, they're having this conversation, Deadshot and Harley Quinn are, and um, she asks Deadshot, has he ever been in love? And he says, no, I don't think so. You don't get to do the things that I have and still lay down and sleep at night and, and get to feel things like love. And then she kind of just looks at him and says, oh, another textbook sociopath, and then they carry on. Did you have any thoughts about that? Are people using the term sociopath or psychopath incorrectly? Or, I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so just, on, I guess people use sociopath sometimes interchangeably with psychopath. It's, mm-hmm. not, a, it's not in the diagnostic manual currently. Uh, that behavior would probably be more accurately described in the antisocial personality disorder. It'd be hard to argue that he doesn't exhibit symptoms of that. I mean, right. he has... a consistent pattern of showing this um, lack of empathy and violent and criminal behavior towards others. So certainly that. You do see this exception with his daughter. Yep. And um, so, you know, technically, and not that I expect all the correct descriptions to be used in fictional stuff, I, I think, you know, I don't know if he quite fits what a sociopath is. It's not in the DSM, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but he certainly does exhibit some symptoms of sociopathy or psychopathy mm-hmm. in his callous, unemotional 
behavior in most situations outside of his daughter. Mm -hmm. But what do you think about that too? I mean, this is they make a big deal of his connection with his daughter is kind of his only motivation and this otherwise kind of ruthless person. Is that something that is typical in someone who has psychopathic features? I'm I'm not sure. It's not something that I'm familiar with in seeing because it's kind of I think when you think about those sort of attachments, you see it in a couple of different ways. A lot of times it, from what I understand, it's a little bit more all or nothing. They either are able to form these bonds or they're really not. Mm-hmm. The only exception to that that you sometimes see, and from, from what I understand, is a little bit more of like um, a territorial sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this person, I don't know if, if this is the right way to say it, but they sort of belong to me. They're, they're part of my, my group. So like if, for example, if someone who is a psychopath does have a spouse and they lose that spouse, they might be upset, but they're not upset because of the lost relationship. They're upset because they lost something that was theirs and that they want. Yeah, that's a great way of framing it. That it, mm-hmm. it so uh, Richard Kuklinski, some people might know as the Iceman, who, mm-hmm. if you're interested in seeing the extreme level of psychopathy in real life, there are some good documentaries on that. Um, and talking to him, he talks about his relationship with his kids, and he says something like, I would kill anyone for them. And even Mm -hmm. that is an interesting inversion of the usual statement, which is, I would die for my kids. And so it does Mm -hmm. seem like there's slightly more attachment maybe than the people that he, um, Kuklinski was a hitman, Mm -hmm. is being paid to kill. There's there's a different attachment. But it's not what you'd see typically in how relationships are formed and the the kind of tenderness that was exhibited in this movie. I mean, I think it is pretty touching that he wants to be, that's his, his conflict, is wanting to be there for his daughter and connected with his daughter. And in fact was a, a huge part of the motivation for why he persisted to, to the end of the movie, because he wanted the perception of himself that his daughter has to be changed so that he would be a hero is what he wanted, mm-hmm. and because he knows that, his daughter knows that he does bad things, he's a hitman. So I think that was a huge motivating factor for him, that maybe you might not see in someone who actually would be uh, classified as a sociopath or a psychopath. Definitely, and the other interesting thing which I'd like to learn more about is in passing as he's talking to his daughter, it seems like there are some, there's something going on with her mom too, you know, that yeah. she's she's taking care of her mom even though she's a kid and something yes. like that. Yes, that's a great point. I That didn't even dawn on me, but you're right, that's a great point. That is very briefly touched upon, but there's something going on there, mm-hmm. you're right. Um, another great character, and I think kind of a fan favorite, El Diablo. I know mm-hmm. I certainly was a fan. Certainly a conflicted character, dealing with a lot of um, anger, uh, a person who loses control of their own actions when they're experiencing this really intense anger and has these abilities which basically is able to create and control flames, I think is the easiest and quickest way to describe it. And they show this flashback where he lost some control, and uh, ended up killing his whole family. What did you think of that character? I really liked his character. I thought that, I don't know if it's intentionally this way, it's hard to imagine there's not some of this, but he seem, it seems like a really great metaphor for when your anger problems are out of control, so yes. much that you are you will lose everything that you love because of it. And so, to me, that's very compelling. And, and and he's a little afraid of his own power. I mean, even yep. when he's trying to use it for good, he seems a little bit afraid to engage in that because mm. he's seen what kind of destruction can happen and it seems like he does lose control. And you've worked with some people clinically who have mm-hmm. anger problems, right? Is that Absolutely. is that how they describe it? Do they feel like they're kind of 
it's just they kind of snap or lose control yep. or what's it like absolutely that is the way that i've heard it described is is there is kind of a snap i lost control you know things just led up to this and and i didn't even realize what was happening um so and, and it's a little bit more complicated too and of course it varies person by person i've worked with quite a few people who've described this too so sometimes there are drugs or alcohol involved mm -hmm. so people will say you know what i blacked out and i lost control of myself and, and and, you know, sometimes people use that as a way to maybe distance themselves from the behavior that they exhibited because it is an uncomfortable thing to recognize when, you know, I did this thing. And it's hard to come to terms with that and accept that and, uh, and you know, be accountable for that. Um, so then that's one place, too, where I, maybe I, you know, maybe I'll challenge clients a little bit and they say, you know, I was drunk and I lost control. It was the alcohol's fault. And they say, well, you know, I know a lot of people who drink who don't do things like that. Yeah. So it's so where you have to kind of explore some of those underlying um, maybe beliefs or behaviors or cognitions that might um, maybe come to the forefront when that person's, you know, intoxicated. That's one example. And then there are other examples as well, you know, where maybe it's a more sober, sober thing or maybe they are, you know, it was just such conflict that they were experiencing with another person that led to them just snapping. But it is it is something that you see where these individuals, in, you know, in my experience, they do feel that loss of control particularly related to really intense emotional experiences. So it is interesting trying to, you know, kind of understand the relationship between emotion and cognition and intense emotions and how is our cognition influenced by that. It's certainly an interesting and I think bi-directional relationship um, that those two constructs have. That's a great point and I think that they, people feeling like they can feel hopeless about their ability to change if they don't understand that mm -hmm. there are some steps that lead up to that point where they act in Absolutely. anger and a lot of the time they just don't know because it feels like the emotions come on so strong yes. but when you in therapy for those who are motivated to do it you and a lot are mm -hmm. I mean in of course devastating cases like what can happen you know like happened in the movie with El Diablo or, or merciful, mercifully more rare than other cases where someone actually kills their family or something like that I think more what happens is they alienate their loved ones because their anger is so out of control and so that can be very motivating and El Diablo did seem I mean he seemed distressed about it yes. and if you have a client who is distressed it can be very powerful to them to help them gain some insight into where their behavior comes from and the idea that they can change it and so I think we'll link in this podcast some link just to cognitive behavioral therapy Absolutely. for anger management because it is something that people all to some extent deal with even if it's yep. not some a physical thing it might just be getting irritable or getting uh, more frustrated than we'd like to be then and, and I, I think that a lot of the understanding of how your own thoughts about a situation can affect your emotions mm -hmm. could be helpful for anyone absolutely well we're just about out of time here so we better wrap it up for today uh, you know take home points for today Rogue One trailer watch it if you haven't and Suicide Squad watch it if you haven't I think those are the two biggest ones and of course, maybe if you're more interested in learning about some of the differences between, you know, uh, we didn't really dive into this, maybe in a future episode, uh, the t you know technical term insane, which is of course a legal term, and then uh, psychopathy or sociopathy or any of those terms. It's all interesting stuff. And, and if you have any questions, send them our way. We'd be happy to talk about that a little bit more. Or if you disagree with uh, our takes on suicide, but please, we'd, we'd be happy to talk about absolutely. those. I like hearing other points of view. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, let us know your thoughts about the movie uh, or anything like that. And in the meantime, you know, check out our Facebook page, check out our Twitter page. We've got our 
podcast episodes hosted up on Podomatic now. We're trying to get them over to iTunes. It's in process still. So, uh, you know, just look for us and keep listening in. And, um, yeah, so thanks very much. Thank you.